In October of 2017, one of the biggest recording artists in the world flew to Melbourne, Australia for a gig. Justin Bieber was in a jet that cost more than $10 million, far bigger than he needed for his small party on the plane. The jet landed, the door opened, first one out was Bieber. He stood one step down on the jetway, took out his cell phone, and took a selfie. Hey, it's Ben Skoda, and this is a special archived episode of Akimbo. A gazelle, surrounded by lions in the bush, will do something surprising. That is, if you don't spend a lot of time watching gazelles. What it will do is start jumping up and down. Using all four legs, it will jump one, two, three feet off the ground over and over again. This is exhausting. It's exhausting for a person and it's exhausting for a gazelle. Why would it do this? Well, the best theory that people have after studying it for years is that by jumping up and down and apparently exhausting itself, it is saying to the lions, don't come after me. I can outrun you. I can outrun you so easily that I'm willing to waste energy jumping up and down to send you the signal that I'm the world champ. Don't run after me. Run after that other gazelle, the gazelle that's too weak to jump up and down. I don't have to outrun all the lions. I just have to outrun the other gazelles. Consider the yellow-banded poison dart frog. If you've ever seen one, and I hope you haven't, they're extraordinary. They look like some form of superhero. They're black with bright yellow stripes. The question is, why would a frog evolve to be so bright, so garish, to look like a construction sign? After all, isn't that going to attract predators? Well, the answer is, again, simple. It's like pronking. The fact is that the frog is saying, hey, I'm so poisonous, I don't need to worry about hiding because you'd be an idiot to eat me. I'm going to announce the fact that I'm poisonous. I don't want you to stumble upon me. I want you to steer clear around me. Evolutionarily, this signal is really profitable for the frog. Then there's the issue of the peacock. What exactly do peacocks need all those feathers for? I mean, other than the royalties they get from being the logo for NBC, how do all those feathers help peacocks? They're expensive. They require a lot of food to grow. Plus, it makes it really hard to run around because you're carrying all those extra feathers. Peahens, female peacocks, they don't have all of that plumage. So how did it evolve? What's it for? Well, it turns out it's a signal. It's a signal that says, I am quite healthy. I am so healthy. I don't need to keep all of my calories just to live. I can divert many of them into growing all this extraordinary plumage. I am happily wasting my energy to send a signal to you, Ms. Peahen, that I am the best choice for a mate. And as peacocks developed this, sexual selection kicked in 
peahens decided they liked that signal. And so peacocks with big tails end up having more children and grandchildren. And so the trait spreads. And what does this have to do with us humans? Humans who are working in the culture and trying to move forward. A bunch of years ago, I visited CAA, the talent agency, in Los Angeles at their old office. Their old office was in a really expensive part of town. And you get to the door, and the door is locked. And as you walk to the door, it opens. And you walk into this room, and I can't tell you how big it was, 3,000 square feet, 5,000 square feet, a huge room. And it's completely empty. And you can't figure out who let you in. And then you notice all the way on the other side is some extremely well-dressed, non-busy person sitting at a desk. They're the person who clicked to let you in. And you walk all the way across this room, like in The Wizard of Oz, shaking and trembling, waiting for your audience before you get admitted into the inner sanctum. How much did this cost CAA? Had to be millions of dollars a year. Millions of dollars a year not spent on productive real estate, but intentionally signaling anyone who visited them that they could afford to waste this space. Cal Newport, the brilliant author, has written about how ineffective open offices are. That open offices where people are constantly interrupted, where people are surrounded by the din around them, in many settings, like computer programming, don't make sense. So the question is, why build one? And what some people have pointed out is that it's more efficient and you save money on rent. That's what Mike Bloomberg did when he built the bullpens that run Bloomberg, a multi-multi-billion dollar company, where if you're lucky, you get six square feet of desk space, and you're jammed right next to everyone else. The amount he saved on rent, he could spend 5% of it on snacks and fish tanks, and visitors say, wow, this is a really cool place. But it's a frenetic open office. So if it's not effective, if it doesn't pay for itself in rent, why do it? Well, Newport's argument is it's a signaling strategy. It's a signaling strategy to people you're going to hire next, to investors you're going to get next. And that signal is, we are so smart and so productive, we can afford to cram people into this bullpen because we're making a ruckus. You want to join us? And even though it is less productive, it appeals, at least today, to a certain kind of employee and a certain kind of investor. So now we get to the heart of it, signaling strategies. Have you ever been confused by a signaling strategy that caused you to change the way you vote for a representative, for a political leader? Do you see signaling strategies being used in the way your doctor or your lawyer dresses? Is a necktie or a fancy Hermes scarf something that makes that person more productive, more comfortable at work? Or is it a way of saying, I am so good at my job that I can afford to do my job wearing a piece of silk tied tightly around my neck that makes it hard for me to breathe. 
but I care about this signal I am sending you. So I will dedicate some of my money and some of my energy to send that signal to you. Someone who's weaker than me, less talented than me, they need to devote all of their effort and energy into their job, and they can't afford a nice office, nice clothes, constraining clothing. So who are you going to pick? Someone who can do it with one hand behind their back or someone who has no choice but to go all in just to keep from drowning? What kind of signal do we send when we send a perfectly formatted resume to people? After all, unless you're applying for a typesetting job or a copy editing job, what difference does it make if you don't follow the convention? Well, the difference is this. By spending the time and energy to know the convention, to see the convention, and to follow the convention, I am sending a message to the employer. And that message has several parts. One part is, I care about social convention. I can see it and I care about it. And the second one is, I have enough resources that I can put the time and energy into following these conventions because I can do the job with one hand tied behind my back. I'm not drowning. There are a few things I want to talk about related to how we give or receive these honest signals, this signaling strategy. The first one is, are they honest signals or dishonest signals? So in the case of the pronking antelope or the case of the poison dart frog, they're honest signals. The fact is you shouldn't chase that antelope. You're just going to waste your time. The fact is you shouldn't eat that frog you are going to die. So we have a choice when we send signals to the world. Maybe the signal we're sending is an honest one. We actually do have the resources to hire a designer to make our resume or to buy a custom suit, that the signal we're sending is true. And the other alternative is to send a dishonest signal, a little trickery, a way of saying to people, I've got these resources, but not really. It's a bluff. And nature has examples of creatures that bluff. And there's plenty of cliches about dogs that bark louder than their bite. Of course, it's challenging to send dishonest signals, because if you're bluffing and it doesn't work, then what are you going to do? And what are you going to do when you get caught caught out as a bluffer in the court of public opinion. It's sort of hard to undo. So consider organizations that have a reputation for being litigious, for having big, angry, fancy lawyers ready at every opportunity to sue folks. Well, if that's an honest signal, then yes, I'd like to get that in advance so I can steer clear of you because I don't need to teach you an expensive lesson. I'd rather just do business with someone else. But if you're one of those folks that's busy sending angry claim letters to people but never following up, the signal you're sending isn't, better watch out. The signal you're sending is, I'm a little bit of a fraud and there's nothing behind the curtain. So when we go into the marketplace, we have to decide, will we have built up enough of a resource in whatever that is in our skill in our capital, 
in our reputation, that we have no trouble sending these honest signals? Or will we choose to invest and to bluff? The second thing that's worth noting is that many people, particularly people without a lot of experience, don't know the signals. They don't know which signals they're supposed to send. As a result, talent doesn't get found. So there are a couple of things to do about this. The first one is if you have talent, if you have passion and skill, don't deny that signals matter. Figure out what the signals are and over-invest in them. Because when you over-invest in them, they're more likely to work. But the second thing is, if you're someone who is looking for resources in the outside world, the obvious way to improve your results, the obvious way to get a bigger return on investment, is to ignore the expensive signals your competitors look for and to find other signals instead. This is the theory behind Michael Lewis's Moneyball, that what he describes there is that the scouts in baseball were busy looking for a whole bunch of expensive signals that didn't actually correlate to skill and performance in real baseball games. And then when Billy Bean came up with a new statistical way to find talent, he was able to get players way cheaper than they should have cost because those players hadn't bothered to work on their other signals. They were simply signaling their real skills and those real skills, their on-base percentage, those skills actually won baseball games. So the same thing's true when we are, for example, hiring people. If the signal you're looking for is, when you were 17 years old, did you allocate enough of your life to do well on the SATs so that you could go to a famous college, so that then 10 years later, I could look at your resume and hire people from a famous college, then what that person, that recruiter is doing is looking at a false signal, a signal that is not correlated to actual success. He or she is going to dramatically overpay for what they're going to get because that Harvard or Stanford or UCLA grad costs too much compared to what they produce. They're overcharging because the signal is worth something to many recruiters. So the insightful thing for the recruiter to do to really earn a living is to look past the irrelevant signals and find the signals that are actually mattering to the organization that's doing the hiring. So the lazy peahen just seeks out the peacock with the biggest feathers. The smart peahen figures out which peacock is willing to do the emotional labor, which peacock has the right situation in the pack or whatever you call a bunch of peacocks that will lead to them producing more productive offspring. Well, it starts to fall apart when we talk about peacocks, but it's not going to fall apart when we talk about our organizations. That our ability to look at which signals we actually think matter and get to the ones that do matter becomes huge. And then the last part I'll talk about is the idea that, thanks to the internet, it's easier than ever to figure out which signals masses of people are looking at and to fake them. A friend of mine had a rule that she wouldn't 
follow any more people on Instagram until she had more followers. She felt like that was humiliating to go negative as she said it. So if she had a thousand followers, she could follow a thousand people. I know it's ridiculous. But for her birthday, I bought her 20,000 followers. Cost me, I don't know, $79. She was thrilled. No harm done. But harm is done all the time in the world of social media because people are intentionally boosting their, quote, following online, either with the shortcut of just buying it, but more likely by putting on a show, by prancing around, so that the kind of people who want to see someone prance will end up following them, so their numbers will go up in some sort of vain quest to show that you matter, to find a new signal. In my industry, one of the big issues is, are you a New York Times bestseller? Well, I got off that merry-go-round 10 years ago, and I'm glad I did. The New York Times bestseller list is famously corrupt. It is really easy to buy your way onto the list. And I would argue at any given time, a quarter to a third of the books in the nonfiction section have bought their way there. You don't buy your way there by paying the New York Times. It's not corrupt like that. It's corrupt because if you organize around buying masses of books from the right bookstores on the right day, you can send a signal to the editors who put together the list. They will misinterpret that signal and put you on the list. The point is, once you realize that a signal has been corrupted, you have a choice. You can embrace the fact that it's corrupted because other people are still looking at the signal, or you can walk away and invent new, more honest signals that you want to live with. And the point of this rant is that I think we need to do both. I think at most organizations, you shouldn't show up at a job interview in a Hawaiian shirt and shorts. You need to pay the price to pronk, to show that you're a poison frog, to waste resources on your interview suit because you're trying to show people that you are culturally aware and willing to overinvest in a certain kind of signal. But as we move forward and the world becomes ever more connected, as we invite more and more people to where they rightfully belong with a seat at the table, where diversity creates value, we're going to have to discard so many of the old signals and embrace new ones, ones that are more relevant and useful going forward. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. So many great questions from our last episode about picking yourself. Moving, heartfelt questions. I'm only going to be able to answer a few, so here we go. Hi, Seth. This is Eduardo from Merced, and I wanted to ask a question regards to your episode, Your It. Uh, it seems like this is much more accomplishable in creative endeavors uh, where the medium has changed and the internet uh, has there's a lot of access. People have a lot of access to the internet. However, what about other endeavors such as medical school? 
uh, where it is very difficult to get in and is very much pick me, pick me. Um, there are requirements X, Y, and Z, and you need these meaningful experiences plus an MCAT score plus grades. Uh, how, what would you advise in that aspect? And from your previous episodes, I would assume that you'd want want to focus on the work, on meaningful work, and it would take care of itself. But I just wanted to see if, if there was any insight with the connection of gatekeepers, since this this pursuit definitely feels like there is no way around the gatekeepers other than focusing on the work. Uh, thank you very much for all you do. You're absolutely right. There are certain professions that are based on the idea of scarcity, and that scarcity is controlled by a gatekeeper, and that gatekeeper has to pick you, and nothing much has changed about those professions. So what I'd point out is that there's a difference between being a doctor, an MD, and being someone who heals others. It is possible to be a doctor who heals others, but it is also possible to be an organizer, a leader, a connector who works in healthcare and makes a difference, who is able to bypass the power systems of the moment to create true growth and healing among the people you seek to serve. And it may be that that coveted license, that rare thing that you got because you got picked, isn't worth as much as you think. And maybe you could get right to the work that you seek to do in the first place, which is healing people. So I can't tell you a way to get picked in a profession where being picked is essential. But I can encourage you to think twice about whether you need to get picked at all. My question's about the emotional aspect of choosing yourself. Getting picked, for me anyway, feels really good. And picking yourself just doesn't, really. This seems to be at the heart of why the majority of people don't choose themselves. They don't really feel worthy of being picked. And so they're hoping someone else is going to do it for them and just surprise them by telling them how amazing they are. Or it's why they write a couple blog posts and then give up when no one seems to care what they're writing. I was just wondering if you have any insight about how to go about making picking yourself feel good, if that's even possible, or if it's just something you have to struggle through because you know logically that it's in your best interest. Thanks for an awesome episode. Really enjoyed it and learned a lot. This is such an honest and helpful question. We've been brainwashed from a very early age to want to get picked, to not believe that we have the ability to pick ourselves, certainly not the right or the destiny to pick ourselves. There's a reason for that. Because the dominant power systems are dominant because they get to do the picking. They get to decide who gets an A, who gets to the front of the room, who gets to the placement office. They get to decide who gets into graduate school, who gets the job, who gets to be a top 40 hit. And as long as people are patiently waiting to get picked, they can maintain order and they get to maintain their power. So of course, it's tempting to do what we've been taught to do. Of course, our instinct is to deny the responsibility we have to pick ourselves and to put that on someone else, to grant them the authority to pick us. And I am not proposing that it will be easy or even fun in the short run 
to go down this path of picking yourself. But, and it's a very big but, you can hear that voice in your head, the one that says you have something to contribute, something to contribute beyond what people have chosen for you. And in this moment in time, I'm not sure for how long, we have the ability to do the work, to put it into the world, to say, here, I made this. And maybe, as we'll hear from the next two callers, it doesn't get applauded right away. That's to be expected. And yet we persist. And we persist because we are generous beyond measure of being because we can. So thanks for sharing that. And I hope that you will wrestle with that noise in your head and contribute what you know you've got inside. After repeated rejections from traditional publishers, I decided to independently publish my Sylvan Cycle fantasy novels, which earned great reviews but little sales. I also started a reading community through my weekly blog and email list, but I'm having trouble growing that community. Without traditional publishers as hit makers, what is the most effective way for an author like me to be heard in the shouting match that is today's open market? Who replaced the publishing houses as influencers, and do I still need their additional boost to help me find the readers that I want to serve? Thank you for the podcast and for all that you do. Yes, exactly. Congratulations. You published. You did the hard work. You put it into the world. And yes, no surprise, the public yawned because the word didn't spread, because a few people weren't moved enough to tell other people. That's probably not your fault. That's just the way it works. It also works that J.K. Rowling, the writer who's made more money than any other writer in history, got rejected dozens of times before someone picked Harry Potter. So yes, it's true. The marketplace might not see you. The marketplace might not understand you. And so that happened. And then what? Well, then we do the only thing we can do, which is we wrestle with what's inside and pick ourselves again and pick ourselves again. And it may be we will run out of time or run out of money before we resonate with the market but we don't have any other choice because we have work that we want to share. This last question, I think, answers itself. So I'll post it here without commentary. And damn it, Seth, your podcast, when you're it, maybe take a deep dive into my psyche. And I found this question I need to ask you. Sometimes I think I'm losing the battle to become a creative. Am I still that little fat kid picked last by my playground peers? Or am I still that 20-something with degree in hand who never found that job that led to prestige? 28 years and still counting, working six days, too many hours, delivering a mail to support my loving party of six. Where do I find the time to create? How do I answer that craving inside of me that I am more than the man in the blue uniform? And yet, after picking up the pen at 40 and putting it down many times, I did it. I have. YA novel on my hard drive, but one I never sent to the gatekeepers. But then you came along with your YouTubes, pods, and blogs, and you spoke to me the way you see things, the hope you give. But every time you say, raise a ruckus, you injured me. It was like being picked last again, 
but I was the one doing the picking. You see, I have been working on a series of short stories, The Adventures of Ricky Ruckus. So I got brave. I found someone to edit. I got a book cover done on Fiverr, and I posted the first two installments on Amazon, The Trouble with Robbits and The Ghostly Doom, and drumroll, crickets. Every time Marty Bird's phone rings on the Ozarks, I find lonely stories. So Seth, you're right. There is no better moment to pick yourselves. Even at 56, I believe that. It's never too late to find your calling. Even when the line is busy and the spotlight shines on another, I take comfort in your words. We are our work. So Seth, my friend, my question. Are the biggest gatekeepers the voices inside our heads? Thank you. Keep on inspiring. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.